Welcome everyone to the special edition of Kiwi Talks because we are now at episode 100 and to celebrate I have a legendary man who's been acting for a long time within New Zealand. I'd like to welcome John Callan. How are you doing? I'm doing very well and how wonderful to be 100. Yes. Splendid. Yes. Yes. I know the feeling. (laughs) I'm sure you feel much younger than you are. (laughs) Uh, Look, most of the time I do, that's true. Um, One day when we were shooting the Hobbit films, um, I did feel a hundred. We were tramping up the mountains in the story and we were given additional bits and pieces to carry with us. So not only did we have our undergarments and our fat suits, which uh, all of us had to wear, um, I was quite sure I wouldn't need one, but they gave me one anyway. And uh, then there were the, uh, the shirts and the cloaks and the overpants and the huge boots, which alone were four and a half kilograms. And um, anyway, they gave us uh, crossed over uh, bags to hang each side. I already had a bag to carry, which had bottles of ointments in it, <laughs> ointments. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was a Peter Jackson line, actually. Oh, and right. um, also, uh, yeah, we were carrying blankets and things like that, extra food on our journey, and it weighed a ton. And as we were heading up the mountain, they put on the rain machine in the studio, and so all our costumes and what we were carrying, made of wool and leather, just sucked it all up. When we got to the end of it, my stuntman, a wonderful man, who uh, was half my age and twice as strong, said to me, come on, John, let's go and weigh ourselves. This is enormous. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't move. I just have to sit here until somebody comes and takes all this kit off me. You go. He went, he came back and he said, John, I just want you to know that you and I, above our own weight, are carrying 53 kilograms. That day, I felt 100 years old. Yes, 53. Extraordinary. Does from carrying that much weight make you stronger, though? Like the more you did it, did you feel stronger or did you feel weaker? You're clearly a very young man, Reese. clearly. And (laughs) probably... Probably quite fit. At the time, I was on the point of turning 65, and that was 10 years ago, so very shortly I shall be 75. And um, no, what it did, I think, was crush my entire spine. Never my spirit, but my spine. Uh, I could definitely feel it. Let's put it that way. Right, right. Okay, but you're still able to do your work and still keep your high spirits up, so that's, that's a feat in itself. Uh, Yes, yes. There was one day where I got sent home because they were concerned about my um, physical well-being. And that was um, just before we started, I developed a hernia down in my gut. Just this is disgusting. Quite uh, quite close to my belly button. However, uh, I could actually push the little bubble back in. This is a story some people find disgusting, but I could pop it back in. And one day we were um, uh, shooting something where we all fell into a big kind of cage device, an upturned um, slotted spoon kind of thing, an old ship's ribs, I think it was. 
And um, they said, okay, right, John, you're quite big. You can be over there and then uh, so-and-so will fall on you and somebody else will come over here and we were all tumbling into it, which was great fun, except that the largest person in the team who was dear old bomber, Stephen Hunter, yeah. landed on me at one point, oh, and I felt it pop out again. Now, I had asked the wardrobe people just to put a little slot in the front of my uh, costume so I could pop my hand in and pop this back in, and it wouldn't go, it wouldn't go, it wouldn't go, and then finally it did, and I yelled out, oh, the F word, <laughs> And suddenly I was surrounded by the first assistant and um, Peter came over and, oh, goodness, are you all right? No, we can, no, you're going home. You're going home. You need to rest, clearly. So I took the afternoon off and my poor old stump man got trampled on for the rest of the afternoon. Was this, was this quite early in the shoot? Uh, yeah, reasonably early. Right. I did actually have it operated on and popped back into place and it hasn't been any trouble at all since then. Did you so have to get? Did you have to get that done during the shoot, and then come back to well, shoot? Well, we 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 did have breaks. For instance, um, I think this might have happened in the latter part of the first year. I can't recall exactly when it happened, mm. but in any event, um, yes, I uh, organised it, got it done privately, and um, there it was. I was fine in a day or two and just told don't do any lifting for for a while so i didn't and that was that there was uh, it was all fine given your resume and obviously all the stuff that you've done did you actually have to audition for the hobbit or was peter jackson like i know john he'll be perfect and cast you <laughs> I don't know if he said I would be perfect, but uh, <laughs> as far as the other things you mentioned are concerned, um, both were applicable. I did audition, and I remember being asked if I could do accents, so I offered them a few uh, accents. One of them was a Scottish accent, which I went with in the end, but I think that had more to do with the story. I I thought it'd be quite lovely to do it like it might have been from down the southwest of England, you know, down there in Somerset or Cornwall or Devon, somewhere around Tiverton, that kind of area. Right. Um, so I did audition. I did do that. And they then asked me to audition for the uh, sound, the voice of the great dragon Smaug. Uh, ah. Clearly, clearly they ended up using an actor that... Um, might have brought them in more customers than me. But uh, there we are. It was great fun to do. So was your voice for Smog any close to Benedict Cumberbatch's at all? Like, what, what um, did you do when you auditioned for the... Do you remember? Oh, yes. I did that kind of thing very, very much. Oh, yes. And then got a bit louder. I am fire. I am death. That kind of thing, you mean? Yes, yes. Yes. That was that was very good. Very good. Bit scary yeah. to do. I don't know how many children I would have scared doing that. <laughs> I, I do uh, have a grandson who's two and a half, nearly three actually. And um, when I put on voices for him, he... Uh, he doesn't like it. He thinks I'm a big bear and he gets frightened. So there we are. 
because you've done quite a lot of voice acting work as well, right? Yes, in fact, um, in a way, it was voice work that got me into the industry. I had been a journalist, uh, newspaper journalist, first a reporter, and then what they call a sub-editor, who seem to have disappeared now, but they are the people who, uh, you've only got to read the New Zealand Herald to know that sub-editors are dead because mm. the number of mistakes in their newspaper I just agree. appalling. Just yes, appalling. it's so bad. In any, in any event, um, I do like their cryptic crossword. Uh, but that's another point. No, I have been working as a journalist, and even from the age of five, I've been doing amateur drama, that kind of thing. At school, at the age of 14, at grammar school in London, I started a drama club, and we did an all-boy production of Cinderella. That was entertaining. Um, and I met in the amateur theatre world in Wellington somebody who was working for a uh, uh, an advertising agency, basically. I was going to say a PR company, but it was really an advertising company and uh, advertising agency. And he was looking for a voice, for a voiceover for a commercial he was doing, and he asked me to... Um, go along and see him and we did a recording and he said he liked it and uh, so that kicked me off and then he asked me to do another one and then um, he uh, he did one where there was a professional actor working with me on this a man who died not long ago just a few months ago a man called Peter Veer Jones and he said to me oh John you should audition for radio drama so I did go and audition for radio drama, and uh, after the audition, uh, Davina Whitehouse, who had taken it, said to me, um, and if you don't know who she is, everybody should know. She's a doyen of New Zealand theatre and performing arts, fabulous woman. Anyway, she said to me, oh, John, you've got a very interesting voice. Um, yes, well, I think we could probably offer you something. So they did offer me something. And what I found I was doing was taking time off from my work as a sub-editor, using up all my holiday and sick leave to go and do these other jobs. And then um, that's, that's kind of where it kicked off. And that was way back in 72 uh, when I started doing that kind of thing. So that's almost 50 years, yes. Wow, quite a while. I wasn't even yeah. born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, until I started really working in theatre in New Zealand, I can't say I hadn't been born, but I didn't really know I was alive until then. It was just a wonderful revelation to me. Yeah, did you see, uh, after Lord of the Rings came out, was there any change in terms of the landscape, in terms of uh, acting roles that came about for you? Because it... uh, Not for me, because I wasn't in Lord of the Rings, so it didn't have uh, any effect on me. Um, but I, I, I kind of mean the, the, the wider industry but, as a whole. Um, look, there is, there is no doubt whatsoever that when you have a look at screen work, film work, uh, I would say Peter Jackson is right up there. He's, um, he's a very affable guy. He's very funny. He's got a great sense of humor. He's very sharp. Um, he knows what he wants most of the time. And when he doesn't know what he wants, 
he kind of expects the actors to deliver what he wants, even though he doesn't know what it is until he sees it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of the wider um, uh, acting world, if you like, the business of screen work, uh, I think he has made a huge difference. One or two of his early films, you know, like Brain Dead, for instance, yeah. uh, became hugely popular, and not just here. And uh, they were kind of loved um, for their individuality. They had a Kiwi element to them that we hadn't really appreciated that much before. You know, I can remember um, doing a film way up the uh, Whanganui River, and it was about two, uh, the Burton brothers, two right. brothers who were photographers. And uh, crikey, the name of the film escapes me. It's terrible because I was in it. I didn't have a huge role. But there was a story of the Pākehā uh, insistence on doing things their way, where one of these photographers was trying to get Māori into Pākehā clothes and pose them in Pākehā homes and situations that were quite alien to their own um, culture, their own um, way of life. And so, um, yeah, I thought this was really, really fascinating. I can't say, for instance, that that film would have had the same influence as Lord of the Rings. That really took New Zealand and stuck it on the world's map. Uh, I have seen maps of the world where New Zealand simply isn't there. Remarkable. Yeah, that's right. But he did that, and I've spoken to people um, here and overseas who said, no, but that particular scene, John, that countryside, that, that's not real. That doesn't actually exist. And we can say, yes, it does, and it's here in Aotearoa, and um, if you don't believe it, come and have a look, you know. And so people have been doing that. It's been absolutely wonderful. And now you have a look at what's happening um, well in Wellington and up here in Auckland. And the amount of work has just blossomed. One of the things that cheeses me off a little bit is the fact that there are still people overseas who can't quite believe that we might have all the actors that they will need. You know what I mean? So yeah. they bring in a lot of American people, for instance. Um, something I did recently, it wasn't, again, a, a, a huge job for me, but it was a co-production between New Zealand and Canada, and we were making it for the North American uh, market, really. So um, here was something that was being funded from offshore, and the entire cast was Kiwi, and the entire crew, the director, the producers, all here in New Zealand. There were producers in Canada, and they would see the dailies, the rushes, and that kind of thing. But um, those kind of opportunities uh, were few and far between beforehand, and uh, even less so, I think, uh, if you weren't a big international known person. Yeah, yeah, because it seems like we are starting to be known for our work ethic in terms of Kiwi crews because we don't, it's not unionized, right? So I know like say in America, like the the person who's carrying bags is not allowed to help someone doing makeup or 
any of that jazz. Like if an actor helps someone lifting a bag, that's like a big no-no in America. No, 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 you don't do that. Whereas everybody seems to help each other out here. Well, that's my understanding yeah. anyway. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. It's not just a matter of carrying the bags. It's a matter of uh, respecting one another, respecting what the other person is doing. I would never, ever touch a camera. I wouldn't pick up a uh, microphone, those kind of things, even though I've used cameras and used microphones, you know. Um, I just wouldn't do that. That's... Mm. Um, not my expertise. I don't ask the actors, to, the uh, crew, to come and stand in front of the camera when my turn comes along. They expect me to do that. And so, you know, the idea of unions is not a bad one. Had New Zealand had the opportunity to do uh, something like the Screen Actors Guild, many many years ago we would not have been in the position of having john key uh, i know he has plenty of fans out there sadly i'm not one of them i'm sure he's a very nice person to his family but um his politics are not mine so when that whole thing of the hobbit law came up uh people were saying we are putting the film at risk in fact what we could do and i spoke to the select committee who were talking about the screen industry employment situation and they had said all right let's have a working group in that working group there were writers actors directors producers the people who are trying to set up international deals every single one of those groups every single one of their representatives, and these are people who are working in the industry and making the industry work, said that the Hobbit law was iniquitous and it had to go. Now, um, the National Party representatives on this select committee said, but surely if they come in here and you're imposing all these rules, they won't want to come you'll ruin the business. And we said, on the contrary, they do work in America, they go to SAG, they know exactly what the rules are before they even start. Has it ruined the American film industry? I don't think so. Everything may be swinging towards Netflix, that kind of thing. Um, that's not a problem for the actors because the film industry is still there. It may not quite have the vibrancy it had years and years ago, but then television has much more vibrancy now than it used to have. So for the actors, for the crews, it swings and roundabouts. And instead of making one 90-minute, 120-minute or a three-hour film, what are we doing? We're making series for television that are 60 to 90 minutes per episode that'll go on for 10, 20. There was something coming out of uh, Scandinavia that went to more than 80 episodes. That's an awful lot of work, you know, and um, it's not Coronation Street. So uh, <laughs> my feeling about unions is that they can be a tremendous asset. 
they can actually help the industry, they can help the producers, and the producers, Sparta, were part of this deal. Now, one of the mistakes people make is, oh, you make such outstandingly ridiculous demands. No, that's not true, we don't. What we want to do is set up minimum, minimum standards. We want people to be safe. We want them to be looked after, just like you would in any industry across this country. Safety on sets, well, just in the past week, there's been a story about a stunt woman who has hurt herself quite seriously here in New Zealand. And um, there's deep concern that that kind of thing is still happening. How does that happen? Yes, there are risks in all sorts of industries, but we need, and as a union, we promote the idea of safety. So uh, yes, I was a member of the union when I was a journalist. I'm a member of Actors' Equity and proud to be so. And there can be connections with people like SAG and British Equity, all that kind of thing. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. So if if that had existed uh, during the time of filming The Hobbit, do you think the whole uh, situation would have been different in terms of the entire filming of it? I mean, there's so much uh, behind the scenes footage of, of, of stuff that happened it, and it became quite convoluted and complicated even before shooting started. Um, did you witness any of that? Like during? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Look, um, not everybody thinks the same as everybody else. Of course. Right. Uh, obviously. Yeah. So within the acting fraternity of The Hobbit, there were people from England, obviously. There were people from uh, New Zealand. And there was a mixture of views about what was going on. Um, I was not a big fan of uh, the Hobbit law, what John Key had effectively imposed. Um, I haven't spoken directly with Peter Jackson about exactly what his view was, but we can come back to that. The deal that we got in the end was better than the one we started with. And then we went to three films instead of two. But what I can tell you is that even with our differences of opinion, every single one of the actors in The Hobbit um, remained friends, you know? And oh, well, we are good. to this day. We were able to appreciate the fact that this person doesn't have the view that I've got and vice versa, but that doesn't mean they're horrible people. It mm. just means they view things differently. Yeah. Well, I could see in some of the behind the scenes footage that you guys really had a camaraderie. Uh, oh, I, good Lord. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, a lot of the pressure I think was just in terms of deadlines, particularly I, I think for Peter, because he had to meet certain deadlines and Del Toro pulling out and then he had him coming in yeah. and then not having enough time for pre-production. So it was all yeah. rush, rush, and, rush. And he, f he fell quite ill too yeah, um, yeah. just before we were due to start. So we had to delay the uh, starting of, of shooting. Um, look, there were protests in the street. There was uh, somebody from my wider family who was a part of those protests who was uh, working 
uh, in the set building area and he said, um, uh, I don't understand your position, John. And I said, well, look, really, I just think if you take the set building and you are there working next to an Australian or an American set builder and they are earning twice what you're earning, how, how can that be fair on you? And he said, well, it's not fair, John, obviously, but I've got a job at the moment and if you guys don't pull back, I won't have a job and neither will you. Now, the idea of not having that job or us not having those jobs had to do with whether or not the film might go overseas. There was talk of yeah. Hungary, I think, doing it over there somewhere. Yeah, Hungary and, and Ireland, um, I think. Yeah, That's correct, yes. And I thought to myself, I'm not sure that's true. Now, throughout this time, I had a secret spy, if you like, <laughs> in the in the office um, and I would sometimes get phone calls saying, uh, John, they're going to hang out to this point and then we're going to go ahead or, oh, they're still talking about this, that and the other thing because I was in what I felt was something of a difficult position. I wanted to sign my contract. I wanted to get stuck in and make the film exactly the same things the people on the other side of the argument wanted to do. They thought we were holding things up and um, we were saying, let's do it, let's do it, but let's not pretend that we are worth less as human beings than people who are coming in from America and England and these other places. Oh yeah, but we'll all be out of work. And the word from my uh, secret spy, uh, I guess they have to be secret, don't they, spies? Otherwise, they couldn't they're, do their they're, they're terrible spies but, um, otherwise, yes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the answer was, uh, quite simply, John, I doubt there is any chance at all this is going to go overseas. That's what I was told. All right. Well, it might have been a strategy, like a marketing strategy to get more of what they wanted. Because you know how sometimes they might threaten. I think they did the same. I think Amazon did the same thing before they started shooting here. They they talked about moving the production overseas to try oh, and get yes. a better deal here to shoot it. Yeah. 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 Marketing I 101. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't say anything about that because I don't know anything about that. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it, 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 it kind of makes sense. I mean, this stuff gets very complicated and very convoluted, and depending on what side you sit on, definitely um, uh, changes the narrative for some people, I think. But as yeah. someone who was on the inside, that was there from day one right up until the end, was there any change in the, the atmosphere as time went on with the shoot? Because I know that there were periods where you, you had downtime where you were just waiting to shoot scenes. The entire movie industry operates on the maxim, hurry up and wait. Um, look, the earliest time I was called was 3.45 in the morning. So I had to be up quite early. That is um, I do know that um, they had a 10-hour turnaround, if you know what that means, from the time you finish one day to the time you start the next. And I said, hang on a minute, I'm in my mid-60s here. Uh, I'm going to need more time than other people uh, because I'm 
on my own here. I didn't have my family in Wellington. They were up here in Auckland. Right. So um, uh, that's one of the reasons I did very, very little of the behind-the-scenes shooting that was done over weekends and things like that because mm. I wasn't there. I would fly back up here to Auckland to see my family. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've completely forgotten what I was talking about now. There you go. It was... <laughs> Uh, I was, as far as as far as working with the uh, cast, the crew, the people in the office, absolutely everybody um, just seemed to click. You know, there weren't any serious toss pots in there at all that I could see. So working uh, certainly in in close quarters with the rest of the dwarves, you know. Uh, was not a problem at all. We had a great time. Sure, there were little groups that went off to do this and do that, that kind of thing. I certainly wasn't one of those who was uh, determined to go out and visit every pub in Courtney Place of a, of a Friday night, you know. Um, but that was my choice. I'd rather go home, have a glass of wine, and cook myself some dinner, you know. Fair uh, enough. I love cooking. So in terms of the spirit around the place, it was absolutely fantastic. The camaraderie that you mentioned was really, really solid. Um, every morning, didn't matter what the time was, um, there would be Jed Brophy, and I know you've already talked to him, haven't yeah, you? Yeah. yeah. And didn't matter what the time was, he was bouncing around like the Energizer bunny on serious coffee. You know, he was always ready to go, ready for whatever the day was going to throw at you. There was one day, I recall, and you talked about having to wait long periods, where I got in there very early, and I'm not quite sure why. It never bothered me particularly. I would get in there, uh, get made up, have breakfast, go and wait. Uh, so that was 13 of us dwarves doing the same thing. Then there were 13 stunt people who all got done up already. And then there were 13 scale doubles. And then one of the actors had a standby person as well who was in costume. So there you had, uh, what, three 13s, 39, 40 people all made up all in costume, all ready to go. We spent ages and ages and ages, hours waiting. We had lunch. We waited and waited. And then we were told, okay, you're all clear for the day. Now, there was one of the, one of the executive producers there, a lovely, lovely chap, and he thought, oh, this is really tough on you guys. Next morning, there was a very nice bottle of wine there just sitting in the trailer. And I said, did you get a bottle? Of yes, you got one too, John? Yes, yeah. We, we all had a very nice bottle of wine there because we'd been kept waiting and hadn't been used. It happened so often, they had to stop giving us the wine because it was costing them too much money. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I bet it was. <laughs> yeah. So what I, you, I, actually, yeah. I actually think it was uh, this one guy who was doing it um, out of the kindness of his own heart and possibly off his own um, credit card. I don't know. But um, we certainly appreciated it as long as it ran. <laughs> yeah, because what would you do while you're waiting? What do you do to um, pass time? 
well i love music and i will play music and some of the music i like is um jazz that other people aren't quite so keen on but um uh, we had music machines in our caravans what i didn't realize was that i hadn't quite set the buttons right and yes i could listen to it inside but it was also playing outside oh, and i didn't right. know that so other people would be out there trying to have conversations while um i was listening to um all sorts of arpeggios on uh, top end uh, flutes and you know those kind of weird jazz things which i was enjoying at the time so uh, i would listen to a lot of music uh, did a lot of reading did a lot of writing uh, kept in touch with uh, family back home and um, that kind of thing um, i would watch a bit of television i'm a big fan of uh, football proper football i mean yeah and yeah. um yes i've got a son who is who knows absolutely everything about every english team there is what's happening throughout europe he knows that well he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of it and it goes back away too so um yeah enjoyed those kind of things and uh, yeah trying to have a snooze every now and then which was made a little bit difficult by virtue of the fact that my character had a ponytail that was plaited and curled upwards on the from the back of the head so um came from the back and pointed up to the sky which meant if i wanted to lie down i couldn't put my head back i, ha I would have to arrange pillows and cushions so that it would cover each side of my head without squashing the bit at the back which had wire in it to uh, hold it in place yeah so that was that was challenging and interesting going to the lavatory was interesting that was challenging um did you fact, uh sorry i was gonna ask did you ever get on. um uh dermatitis or rashes or anything from the the uh the beards or any of the facial makeup because i've heard that sometimes that can happen uh, it can happen, and uh, I think Adam Brown, one of the English actors who came over, gorgeous, lovely man, he uh, and very talented, scary. Uh, if you ever come across Adam Brown, uh, maybe ask him to respond to one of your questions through the medium of interpretive dance. Okay. I'm sure you'll have a lot more fans <laughs> if you do. Um, just crazy. He had trouble with what you're talking about with rashes. I didn't. Um, I knew what was coming, so I shaved uh, my beard off. They cut all my hair off as soon as I arrived. I had hair down to here. Yes, oh, an wow. old hippie. An old hippie. Uh, and my beard was much longer than this. And uh, I knew I'd have to get rid of it. So I got rid of my beard and my mo early so that the skin could recover from that before they started slapping stuff on smart and i didn't apart from the heat i didn't have any trouble at all okay oh that's good because that would make the shoot a lot easier i mean if you were did anybody did anybody tell you that the hair on the set that you see in the film of all the dwarves was actually yak hair it wasn't human hair. The eyebrows were human hair, but all the beards uh, for, 
well, for most of us anyway, were off the belly of a yak. Did it smell weird? No, oh, no, no. They, no. they have washed it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. That's good. It's good to practice what hygiene. Was it? One, of the, one of the things I laughed at most about the uh, beards was that when uh, lunchtime came around, uh, they would take off the moustache. Mine was in three pieces. Uh, first of all, there's little Hitler moustache and then bits each side. They would take that off so that I could eat properly. And I was fastidious about getting tissues. I would cut my food up and then hold a tissue across here, across the webbing of the beard, which was still on, so that I didn't make a mess of my beard and then eat my food one-handed most of the time. Ah. There was one of our number who was, uh, I shall, he, he will remain nameless because okay. if I mention Peter Hamilton's name, he would be embarrassed. And he didn't care anyway. At least that's what he said. Um, <laughs> but he, it would frequently become unstuck around the bottom lip. And so um, he would just hoover his food in. And then the poor... The poor makeup woman, the prosthetics and the hair person would have to have, uh, she used chopsticks to go down between the whiskers and his actual chin to pull out all the bits of food that had dropped in there. Oh. <laughs> yes, not, not a job I want to do, but there you go. Sounds you pretty go. nasty. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, there were all sorts of odd things which I thought, oh, I don't want that job. Um, everybody had fake hands, for instance, except me. I've got a bit of arthritis here in my um, in this joint down here. Oh, so right. even just picking up a plate sometimes can be painful. And when they came to fit us with these uh, fake hands, um, somebody had clearly taken his hand like that and put it into a mould, and so that's how they came out, like that only bigger so naturally the hand doesn't sit like that does it if you no. just look down at your own hands you'll see that they're probably curled in but ours you know in this kind of configuration but right. ours were all like that and i found after 10 minutes quarter of an hour that the pain down here wasn't going to go away and to hold it in there required pressure otherwise if you were just standing there your hand was kind of like this Okay, mm. so they made me gloves, which was splendid, splendid. But what I was going to say is that for The Hobbit and for any of the other Hobbits and for those of us who were wearing these hands and they would come right down to the elbow, um, to get them on, they would put talcum powder inside them. We would work with them. We'd work up a sweat. And so when you took these things off, there was this white, milky-coloured liquid that came out of them. Disgusting. And these poor prosthetic makeup people, costume people, uh, I felt sorry for them because there were days where we were so hot and sweaty when we took our costumes off, they were literally dripping with sweat. And... Uh, I said, how do you get them clean? They said, oh, it's very simple, John. Um, 
they didn't wash everything. They hung everything up. And um, yeah, there again, sweat, as I said, would be dripping out of it. But they would spray it with some kind of alcohol solution, which would then just kind of um, evaporate and take all the nasty stuff with it. So uh, the people of Wellington are probably still breathing in our sweat to this day. <laughs> well, would it be worse if you were wearing that stuff while you're on set with the scorching sun, like an, an, on, a, on a location shoot? Oh, yeah, there were days um, when I've been uh, out there and I really did just have to say, look, I'm sorry, I have to go and sit down in the shade and get a drink of water. Uh, one of those days was when we were down uh, in a place called Paradise outside of Queenstown, which was Bayonne's house, the shapeshifter. Yep. And what a fabulous set that was. Oh, and yeah. I remember one day saying that very thing, I'm going to go over to that tree and I'm going to just sit there in the shade and have a break for five minutes. And I went over and I put my hand up on the tree to keep myself steady while I sat down. And it wasn't until I touched the tree, I realized it wasn't a real tree. There had been one, but a couple of days before we were shooting, a storm had gone through and the tree that had been an essential part of the set had fallen over. And so in that short space of time, the set people have managed to build a new tree and replace the real one with one that was identical. I swear, you watch the film, you wouldn't be able to tell. It's just extraordinary. The talent on that thing was every single set we went into, we were all blown away. My giddy aunt, how do they do it? Some of the stuff where we're chasing up just before we get um, onto the, uh, the giant eagles, in that part of the story, we were actually inside a studio. Amazing. So all the background stuff was green screen and was digitally painted in later. But we actually were in a forest in the studio, running up and down and up and down the, uh, the hill through the trees. It was just an extraordinary place to be. Yeah, it's it's funny and fascinating, like looking at the different ways that it was shot. I mean, even with some of the uh, the differences in sizes, right? So, say I, I know yeah. with like say with Gandalf and the dwarves, and you were shot on two separate stages, weren't you? And then somehow uh, blended together. Look, that happened very early on when we were at Bag End, and we mm. were talking about how we were going to get around. So we rehearsed the hell out of it. Um, and then um, uh, dear, dear Ian had to go off and be by himself. Hmm. And the rest of us were actually communicating with a green ball on the end of a stick, uh, which is where he was going to be, obviously. But I could, uh, we all could, because we had earpieces to be able to hear what he was saying to prompt our lines. And similarly, he was listening to us. And he... he clearly wasn't the happiest of men that day. Yeah, so I've and, heard. Uh, mm. Yeah, uh, that, that was one way of getting around it. So we had a set that was hobbit height and wasn't too bad for we dwarves. 
he had to go into one where everything else was much smaller and he was much taller. One of the things that we heard there, which was, I cracked up, well, we all did. Um, he went into his little studio set, much smaller than ours. Everything was green for him. And he said, oh, oh, look, um, I'm awfully sorry, but I can't remember which of the uh, which of the dwarves is in which seat. There's so many of them. Hmm. And I think it was the third AD said, oh, yeah, all right. Um, well, Ian, uh, Sir Ian, sorry. Um, look, we've got these little stickers here. So the brown one here is for John and the green one is for Stephen, and the red one is for Mark, and the blue one and went all the way around the table. And dear Ian just waited and said, oh, yes, 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 good, good, good. Yes, there's two things about that. First of all, I'm not sure which of the actors is playing which of the characters. And secondly, you do realize I'm colorblind. Brilliant. So I think they went off and got photos and stuck them on the back of the chairs. Around well, the table yeah. Why did they just do that later. from the start? That seems like the easiest uh, thing well, to do. Well, you know, if you've just got a tiny dot to paint over digitally, it's much easier than... Oh, yes, know. I suppose. Yeah. 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 So what was it like actually working with Ian McKellen and uh, Billy Connolly and Martin Freeman and... All these heavyweights. Uh, look, they were great. They were such characters too. I remember seeing uh, Martin, lovely, lovely man, um, you know, devoted to his wife, his family, uh, and uh, possibly with the single most foul mouth of anybody I've worked with, which I wasn't expecting, but my goodness, it was funny, you know. Um, I saw him one morning walking in and I uh, said, oh, good morning. How are you doing today? And he said, why don't you F off? And called me something else. <laughs> and I thought, oh, all right, fine. But he was just, um, he was full of uh, humour and he was, he had no airs and graces. You know, I had worked with one or two actors who were just a little bit, oh, don't you know who I am kind of thing. Nothing like that. Ian McKellen was absolutely delightful one day i found myself in the lunchroom by myself and he came and sat down with me and i said oh hello ian how are you doing he said look you can tell me who you are but of course once you get out of costume i won't know who you are will i because you look so different yeah. and i said um oh well all right i'll try and put on this voice for you all right and he oh splendid splendid and we just talked about plays that he'd done, that I'd done, Shakespeare roles that we'd both done, uh, some that he'd done that I hadn't, and vice versa. And uh, it was absolutely fabulous. And then from the other end of this huge dining tent, I think they could seat up to about 600 people. And we were there alone. Who comes in from the other end but Billy Connolly? And he comes on over and I said, oh, how are you, Billy? You're looking a bit, um, I, I am. Uh, you're not not too good. He said, no, I'm not. I'm not. What have you been doing? I've been trying on the effing armour. And I said, oh, God, it's heavy, isn't it? Heavy? I cannot stand up in it. I said, I can't sit down in it. They have to bring me a bar stool and I just lean on it. And he said, hey, it's like wearing an effing Volkswagen, isn't it? 
<laughs> Look, good guys, good guys. No, uh, no messing about. That great sense of humour, great sense of humour. And um, we did see footage, outtakes from the Lord of the Rings, where uh, dear Ian had dressed up as a queen. Oh, really? The queen. Like the Queen of the Elves. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of Galadriel? Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. With all that kit on. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious. So a very good, very intelligent sense of humour, both those guys. Absolutely gorgeous. Given how you've, you've done film, you've done television, you've directed, uh, you've done theatre, uh, yeah. is there anything in particular of those that you prefer to do? Or do you like to keep yourself... Um, busy and occupied and keep things fresh by constantly switching between the the various different ways of acting yeah the, the different um formats do require a slightly different approach but if you are thinking about what that approach is you're not thinking about what the character's doing in any given moment you know mm, mm. i remember um i was directing shortland street actually and we yeah. had an australian actor over and um we were in the middle of a take, and so I'm watching the monitor, and suddenly this actor is looking at me. And he uh, he went out of his um, acting voice, and he said, uh, John, mate, said, what is it? We're in the middle of a take. What are you doing? Cut. He said, yeah. Um, I noticed that the uh, the light on camera two here went out when I was speaking, John. Yes. Well, if I'm speaking, shouldn't the camera be on me? I said, Oh my God. <laughs> I said, Listen, um, if your acting is good enough, the camera will be on you. Let me say this if your acting is good enough, you won't notice whether the camera is on or not because you'll be Brilliant inside response. what you're doing. So I went round and uh, got the second AD to put tape over all the lights on the camera so he didn't know which one was live. Oh, that's brilliant. He would have hated but, that. Very easy. But, you know, when you uh, have the kind of cachet that people like Sir Ian McKellen have, you, uh, you can't be... You, they're just not like that, you know. They get into yeah. the work. They stay inside the work, you know. Uh, they may well come out. And this is one of the things that is a little bit different. If you are working on television or in film as an actor, you don't know which take or which parts of any given take are going to be used in the final edit. Mm. The people who decide that are the producers, the directors, and the editors. Those are the people who will make those choices. So uh, when you are on stage, once the lights go down in the auditorium, the curtain opens and the lights come up, it's all you, mate. Yeah. You make a mess, you tidy it up. All right? You do a brilliant performance, it's a brilliant performance. It may have had guidance towards that, but unless you can uh, put aside the if you like the presence of the director in the work you're doing on stage and become the character 
then what you're doing is just uh, you're being a puppet really and that's never going to give you a good outcome there there is uh, i do like working with young people i really really enjoy it their openness their enthusiasm even their shyness uh, has got such charm in it and i constantly ask these young people what do you think is the most important relationship in the work that we do? And frequently the answers have to do with the actor to director, the actor to writer, the actor to actor, all those things are valuable. But the single most important relationship is between the characters in the story, all right? Mm. That is what makes things work. So if you don't have that, um, well, you haven't even got pandemime, have you really? <laughs> so how do you, what's your style of directing? I mean, well, I suppose it depends on the project, but say with Shorten Street, right? That's very, very fast paced. So you have to just yeah. nail everything out quickly. But are you someone that kind of lets the actors have more freedom or are you quite particular about what you want? I mean, was, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes and no. Look, one of the things about um, shows like Shortland Street, like the um, the uh, Broken Wood Mysteries, for instance, is that the central characters know their, uh, the central actors know their characters better than the directors do. Mm. So what we have to look at is the relationship between them uh, and the relationships between them and the characters who are coming into that episode, for instance, same with Shortland Street. And um, I cannot think of very many, only one or two examples where the actors who are in it constantly have been anything less than generous to newcomers, that kind of thing. So my way of approaching this, uh, I know some actors hate it when directors say what do you think the scene is about but if i ask that question and the actors come back and say well it's about reconciliation it's about destruction i'll go i agree i will know what i want so if one says one thing and one says another and neither of them are what i'm thinking then we'll talk about it and sometimes they will say things and i'll say well show me and get them to do what they are imagining. And then I might say, look, that in itself is fine, but that's heading in this direction, whereas the rest of the episode is heading in that direction. So you need to be with us. Mm. And don't make the mistake of thinking that because Shortland Street is fast, it has less value. What it requires is a particular skill um, to be able to not come in and work up a performance but to arrive with a performance at a level that we as crew as directors uh, can just adjust slightly but which has already got some uh, relevance and some importance within it mm. well it makes sense makes sense yeah yeah, but you're always under time constraints, right? Are you always like oh, worrying about time? Well, you are. You are with theatre too. You can't oh, rehearse yeah. for twelve months, can you? No, no. no. Uh, but you get to rehearse for a lot longer usually, don't you? With with theatre, um, for the number of minutes you're putting out, yes. But yeah. then even on uh, even on the Hobbit, sometimes uh, 
we would turn up, we would know what scene we were going to do. Sometimes I would say, oh, we're going to do this first. And you're going, oh, crikey, what page is that? Uh, do I know these lines? Oh, yes, yes, I know them. Uh, so, John, you're going from A to B to C, and Jed, you're going from D to E to F, and then, Mark, I want you to come in, and we'll all meet at Z right here, okay? And I'll probably put the cameras up. Let's just walk through it, and we do that. Yeah, okay, just bring yourself this way, John, and that way. And they're gearing everything for the cameras. Off you go. They set up the lighting, the cameras, the tracks, whatever they need to do it. Then you call back in. You might run through it once or twice, and then it's take, take, take. Mm. So even on a big gig like that, the amount of time that an individual actor will have for an individual scene is not hugely more than you might get for something like The Broken Wood Mysteries or Shortland Street. Given that you also direct, were there any times that you were looking and watching what Peter Jackson's doing and thinking, hmm, I'd do that differently, or what would I do if I was in his shoes? Next well, the latter question, the latter question, very much so. Um, there were times, and I can remember distinctly, uh, when the Battle of the Five Armies was uh, being shot and we were all up behind the battlements uh, waiting, and I saw him sitting there with the script, just turning the pages, going over and my thought was are you a little bit unsure have you not quite had the time uh, or are you looking to see if you can adapt fine detail before we go into this and i didn't know what he was doing mm. i i i would frequently when directing use chess pieces not necessarily on a board just on a tabletop uh, as characters, just so that I can move them around and get camera shots on the run that I needed to get, uh, so that we didn't, in Shortland Street case, have to do too many pickups, that kind of thing. Oh, I'm rocking my table. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, so it was tough for Peter because he wasn't expecting to uh, take on the mantle of director initially. And then when he did, he was certainly the best qualified person to do that job. Andy Circus was a gift, a gift for him. What a fabulous man he is. And uh, so skilled. And he took over second unit. Everything that he was doing, Peter had access to in his little tent. And he would, um, he would have a look at what um, Andy was doing and say, yes, no, do this, try that. Uh, and then every now and then he'd come over to the second unit and, um, you know, do something a bit different. But uh, sometimes things had not worked out the way I think Peter had initially expected. One of the things was a, a running battle that went over the rooftops of Lake Town and what the crew had done was build a whole load of rooftops which sat on the floor of the studio so that nobody actually fell too far and they had the fight going on and bits of these rooftops were fixed and hinged 
so that they had hydraulics whereby they could crash down one on top of another or all over the place. So they worked out a whole routine with the stunt team and they ran through it with Peter and they had everything moving, everything working and I wasn't there. The story, I did see the thing set up and how it worked, but I wasn't there when they ran the, uh, the punch up. And uh, at the end of it all, Peter said, can I see it again? They did it again. And he said, no, it doesn't work for me. Uh, right, can this, we'll go back to square one on that. Now, I don't know how long it had taken them to do that, wow. build all that, uh, but they decided that they had to adapt it in some way. So that was quite a big thing, really. Yeah, sounds like it. It's fascinating. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, I, I wasn't um, responsible for ticking or crossing any of the um, finances, so I didn't have to worry too much about that. Well, that's um, a huge burden. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, not for me, not for me. I have tried producing, not my field at all, no. Would you say it's more pressure than being a director, being a producer? On, in a lot of ways, because as a producer, you have to have faith in your director or you're going to end up with something you weren't expecting. Now, if you end up with something you weren't expecting that is better than you were expecting, fantastic. Yeah. But um, that doesn't always happen, does it? No, no. You know, if you're thinking of big money spending and... Um, uh, as a producer, how do you feel when you uh, release a film that isn't at all what you expected it to be, you know? Yeah. It's, it's an incredible gamble. I worked with a, uh, a guy who uh, was the first time I went to Hollywood, was way back in the uh, uh, mid-80s, I think. And, yeah, I was 40, 41, something like that. Anyway, we, uh, we went over to Hollywood, and this guy had mortgaged his house to fund what was then uh, an interactive um, game with a board game and good old VHS um, drama. So it was a Sherlock Holmes thing. And we went... Um, and we, uh, we shot scenes, and then at the end of the scene, the New Zealand actor, Gerald Bryan, who was playing Dr. Watson, would step forward and say, ladies and gentlemen, did you notice that my friend Sherlock Holmes saw A or B or C? Which do you think it was? Just press pause when I finish talking to you and go back to your board. If you throw a six, you could get this. If you throw a three, you might have to start all over again. So it was interactive between the VHS and a board game. And the uh, producer had mortgaged his house uh, just so that he could say it was filmed in Hollywood, sent us all over there. And uh, me, Stuart Devinney, Mark Hadlow was one of them. And... Um, Gerald Bryan, as I say, and we got over there, lots of extras, and we uh, we had a ball, except somebody along the way ran off with the money. 
So this poor producer who had put his own money, his own house on this particular production was left with nothing. Just appalling, just appalling. I don't know what the outcome of all that was, but to come back to one of your very early questions, we worked in two studios. One was a union studio and one was a non-union studio over in the valley. Uh, and we uh, found that the unionized studio was very set, as you said, everybody had their job, everybody did their job, you didn't touch anybody else's things. And that was great. That was great. When we were in the non-union set, I felt a lot uh, more, I didn't feel so comfortable. Because more, more anxious. Why? Well, because people were touching things and other people were saying, where the hell's the XYZ gone? I left it over. Oh, did you? I think Bob wanted it over there. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, it was free and easy. We got through it all right, you know, and one or two people said, oh, it was much more relaxed, wasn't it, John? And I said, well, once again, get your head inside what you're doing and not what's happening around you. Yeah, you know? tunnel vision. Yeah, yeah. Look, I just want to say that working on The Hobbit was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, there were differences that some of us had. There were political differences. There may have been some artistic differences, but um, there were people there who are friends still. Um, the voice coaches were amazing. And one of them, an Australian woman, uh, is now here in Auckland working here, and it's a been a pleasure to catch up with her. Um, those kind of relationships are uh, established in this industry in a way that maybe they aren't in many other industries where you go in, you turn up, you do your work, you go home. Um, and maybe there are one or two people for Friday night drinks, you know. But uh, we don't work nine to five kind of lives. And so uh, it really is exciting. Is there a preference I have for theater, television, film? My preference is to be working. That's a brilliant answer. I'll ask you one more question just before I let you go. Yeah. Uh, because I heard that you, I, I did see that you did some voice acting for Star Wars, like a Star Wars video game. Oh, <laughs> yes, that was right at the end of the whole thing. And I forget who it was. Uh, I'm trying to remember who it was. That was done down a fiber optic line years ago. Mm. And yeah, they just wanted voices of people who didn't have voices in the shooting. So quite often you will have a whole group of people there. Nobody speaks but the lead actors with the lines. And then you might get um, mumble mumble and loop groups, as they call them, of people talking. <laughs> you know, in the background, that kind of thing. So there was a little bit of that, but also uh, specific lines for characters who were well covered, that kind of thing. And um, that's all it was. And I can't even remember who was on the end of the line now. So they just uh, are they just giving you direction over uh, you know a, a webcam of some sort or a, or a telephone uh, line? Well, just... when I did that, there wasn't a webcam. 
they were uh, showing footage, but um, I was just listening to them in my cans. Sometimes, even now, I do voiceovers for overseas things where uh, I'm looking at the footage and I will never even see the people who are directing me. Very ah, peculiar. Yeah. That is strange. I, I can hear them and they say, okay, John, now you see where the uh, paintbrush goes into the can? Just as it's coming out is where you need to start line five to make sure that we're covered by the time we get to the end because we can't go over because we're cutting to a new shot or, you know, whatever it is. So that kind of thing. Um, and that's what we were doing with the uh, Star Wars thing. So there was an awful lot of, uh, I did a, a chunk of fight stuff, which is just beating myself up, groaning and moaning. And do uh, you want any actual words in here? Oh, well, uh, whatever you think, John, but um, I don't want any bad language, okay? Okay, fine. And off you go, beating yourself up and lots of maglumpf, as we call it. It's so, so bizarre. It is bizarre, um, uh, but it can be entertaining, you know. And yeah, again, yeah. you have to commit yourself. I, uh, this year, took uh, a group of 16 actors young actors from a drama school called the actors program and we went to different recording studios around um auckland mm. and we uh, stood them in front of the microphone and those who were able to just inhabit a character and put their entire being including their body into what they were doing they are the ones who will get the work no doubt about it. I come out of voice jobs sometimes sweating like a mad horse. Mm. I'm not as fit as I should be, but uh, I'm old, so I don't care too much anymore about that. But, I don't um, think most people do when they're, <laughs> there, when they're old too. <laughs> yeah, but it's good fun. I still enjoy it. And one of the things I like doing is audio books for the blind people because oh, yes. you... Uh, these are non-commercial things, but it means that you, once again, are in charge of your own work, really, and you get to play all these different characters. So reading the book ahead of time, you have to work out whether you're going to give each character a different voice or whether you will just give them slight differences through conversations so that you know you're going from character to character. Um, that's, that's really rewarding work to do. And when uh, I get comments from listeners, people who are using the books, it um, kind of justifies uh, justifies all the effort. Yeah. Well, hey, that's a brilliant place to wrap up, John. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know, I know your schedule must be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, today it's not. All I've got to do this afternoon is buy more dog food and. Uh, couple of light bulbs that's about it okay well hey enjoy your day off enjoy your day off do you have uh, much social media where people can follow you if they want to keep up to date with uh, you? well i'm i'm on facebook but that's about it really okay i haven't i haven't bothered with instagram or tiktok or well that's probably a good thing Snapchat. to be honest yeah 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 it's rubbish it gets yeah. in your head i figure i figure if somebody like the ex-president of the united states is using a social media device to spread alarm and disruption and 
personal politics, I don't really want to go there. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. Uh, support John and all his work. Go back and watch his earlier stuff if you if you haven't seen it. Uh, John, once again, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for being episode 100. Well, it's been a real treat. Uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it, and uh, as a lot of people will tell you, my goodness, he likes the sound of his own voice, doesn't he, that John Callan? <laughs> Thanks, mate. All right. Have a good one. You too. See you, everyone. Bye.